In Memoriam A.H.H. by Alfred Tennyson This next cycle of cantos is a touching portrait of Tennyson's efforts to find solace in his faith. In Canto 31, Tennyson reflects on the story of Lazarus returning home to Mary after having been miraculously raised from the dead. He considers that there is nothing in the account of St. John, who recorded the raising of Lazarus, about where he had been, whether he had yearned to hear them weeping, or what it is to die. He is not asked questions. Instead, he is simply received with joy by Mary, by his neighbors, and even by the surrounding hills, which are crowned with a glow of gladness. Here is Canto 31. When Lazarus left his charnel cave, and home to Mary's house returned, was this demanded, if he yearned to hear her weeping by his grave? Where wert thou, brother, those four days? There lives no record of reply, which telling what it is to die had surely added praise to praise. From every house the neighbors met, the streets were filled with joyful sound, a solemn gladness even crowned the purple brows of Olivet. Behold a man raised up by Christ. The rest remaineth unrevealed. He told it not, or something sealed the lips of that evangelist. For the believer, this is a stirring image of unquestioning faith. Instead of seeking understanding, Lazarus's loved ones are content to behold the miracle of a man raised up by Christ. But I see something here even for the unbeliever. It is a picture of a love so powerful that all the questions that might plague us when our beloved is gone, or might puzzle us should he return, would dissolve into irrelevance in the face of our overwhelming joy at his mere presence. In the next canto, we have an image of Mary, her question set aside, dwelling in silent gratitude that her brother has returned, and feeling the presence of Jesus, the one who has brought him back. Looking upon Lazarus, her love is transfigured from love for him into love with a capital L, love of the good and love of God. Again, all thoughts of death are borne down by gladness, and she shows her gratitude by bowing down and bathing Jesus' feet in her tears. There is, Tennyson says, no blessedness like those with such purity of faith and earnest devotion to this higher form of love. Here is Canto 32. Her eyes are homes of silent prayer, nor other thought her mind admits, but he was dead, and there he sits, and he that brought him back is there. Then one deep love doth supersede all other, when her ardent gaze roves from the living brother's face and rests upon the life indeed. All subtle thought, all curious fears, borne down by gladness so complete, she bows, she bathes the Savior's feet with costly spikenard and with tears. Thrice blessed, whose lives are faithful prayers, whose loves in higher love endure. What souls possess themselves so pure, or is there blessedness like theirs? I am moved by the image of Mary's eyes roving from Lazarus's face to the very essence of love and life. Again, this can be interpreted in a religious context, but it has meaning for anyone with a sense of spirituality, 
with a conception of the soul, even if it is a secular one. We all need to cultivate the capacity to see to the very essence of love within those on whom we bestow it. And throughout this entire poem, that is what I think Tennyson is helping us to do. The next canto is difficult for me. Very difficult. I took comfort in the fact that one of my annotated copies introduces this canto by saying, quote, This poem is abstruse and requires thought and care for the interpretation of the poet's meaning. Unquote. Indeed, and I am more confident of the meaning of some than others. This is one of the others. But here is my best effort. Tennyson seems to be issuing a warning to the sort of man who, having faced toil and storm, feels he has reached some higher, abstracted form of faith unconnected with its practices. He counsels us to admire and seek inspiration from the simple, pious woman who finds her faith in the doing of good deeds, and who looks on flesh and blood and sees the sacred. Here is Canto 33. O thou that after toil and storm mayest seem to have reached a purer air, whose faith has center everywhere, nor cares to fix itself to form. Leave thou thy sister when she prays, her early heaven, her happy views, nor thou with shadowed hint confuse a life that leads melodious days. Her faith through form is pure as thine, her hands are quicker unto good. O sacred be the flesh and blood to which she links a truth divine. See thou that countest reason ripe in holding by the law within, thou fail not in a world of sin, and even for want of such a type. Struggle though I might, what I personally take from these stanzas is something like this. Fulfillment is to be found not by reaching some higher plane of moral consciousness, but by performing everyday acts of goodness, and by seeing the sacred in the simple. In Canto 34, Tennyson avers that life must live forevermore, that man must be immortal. If he were not, the material world would be nothing more than dust and ashes, with darkness at its core. The beauty of the earth would be equivalent to the random expressions of some irrational poet, without meaning or purpose. There would be no substance to the concept of God, and no point in living. Here's Canto 34. My own dim life should teach me this, that life shall live forevermore. Else earth is darkness at the core, and dust and ashes all that is. This round of green, this orb of flame, fantastic beauty, such as lurks in some wild poet— when he works without a conscience or an aim. What then were God to such as I? T'were hardly worth my while to choose of things all mortal, or to use a little patience ere I die. T'were best at once to sink to peace, like birds the charming serpent draws, to drop head foremost in the jaws of vacant darkness, and to cease. This is a poignant picture of Tennyson's conception of life without immortality. Were he to believe that man is mortal, he would lose all patience for living and throw himself into the darkness of death, like a bird drawn head foremost into the jaws of a serpent. 
Stanza 35 has its own cycle of thoughts within this larger cycle of reflection on love and immortality. Tennyson asks himself whether, if some trustworthy voice could whisper to him that man does die, that he merely turns to dust, wouldn't he strive with all he is to keep the love he felt alive, even for an hour? But then he imagines turning his ear to the sounds of the sea, eroding the continents into the dust they someday will be. And he thinks that love too would erode into nothing, would lose all its sweetness, if he knew that life comes to an end. He concludes that real love is possible only if life is immortal. If we accept the inevitability of death, love is reduced to some soulless fellowship of moods, or the sensualism of the lustful satyr. Here is Canto 35. Yet, if some voice that man could trust should murmur from the narrow house, the cheeks drop in, the body bows, man dies, nor is there hope in dust. Might I not say, yet even here, but for one hour, O love, I strive to keep so sweet a thing alive. But I should turn mine eyes and hear the moanings of the homeless sea, the sound of streams that swift or slow draw down Aeonian hills, and so the dust of continents to be. And love would answer with a sigh, the sound of that forgetful shore will change my sweetness more and more, half dead to know that I shall die. Oh me, what profits it to put an idle case If death were seen at first as death, love had not been, or been in narrowest working shut. Mere fellowship of sluggish moods, or in his coarsest, sadder shape, had bruised the herb and crushed the grape and basked and battened in the woods. When Tennyson asks himself whether, even if he were to accept mortality, might he not say even then, But for one hour, O love, I strive to keep so sweet a thing alive. My internal response was, yes. It called to mind the line in Dostoevsky's White Nights, also available in the Read With Me app. Quote, My God, a whole moment of happiness. Is that too little for the whole of a man's life? Unquote. I myself don't think love requires immortality for it to have profound spiritual meaning. But there are prerequisites to experiencing it as something sublime. And once again, I think Tennyson is helping to provide them. <laughs>